Thanks for listening to the CISO Diaries podcast. We're Leah. And I'm Sia. And we started this podcast with the intent to give CISOs and cybersecurity professionals a place to be their authentic selves. These are the unedited stories told of how they got into cybersecurity, their real struggles that they persevered through, their personal anecdotes that make them tick, and the leadership advice based on their own experiences. And we want to especially spotlight those that are contributing and giving back to the community apart from their day jobs. This podcast is for everyone, especially if you're a leader or someone aspiring to leadership. Who knows? You may find yourself working with these awesome leaders. So join us on your favorite podcast player. And please don't forget to subscribe, follow, like, and comment and engage in the conversation. And now let's get to know our CISO on our latest diary entry. Oh, yeah. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to our show today. I'm Leah, and I'm here with my co-host, Sia. Hello, hello. A quick shout out to our sponsor, Cyber Future Foundation. They are an organization of executive leaders who are focused on taking action across a number of the cybersecurity initiatives for a safer and more, more trusted world. And on today's episode, we have quite an innovative woman with us who has a very intriguing and important career. She's in national security and intelligence. She has two decades of senior expertise in Canadian and U.S. government. She has managed and participated in the transformation of mission-critical systems, developed cybersecurity strategies and frameworks, and has identified capabilities and methodologies to deliver countermeasures aligned with departmental security strategies. She also has a master's in terrorism studies. She is currently writing a thesis on terrorism as a social model. She's a member of the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police E-Crimes Council, FCA Cyber Council, NATO Canada, International Association of Chiefs of Police, Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, much, much, much more. Uh, It's very impressive. Our guest, Valerie Finley. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Good, good. So it that's um. I mean, you've got quite the background, and it's been, and you're an entrepreneur on top of it. You know, share a little bit more about us for those who don't know you in terms of how did you get into, I guess, national security number one, um, but also about some of the recent endeavors you have around your entrepreneurial side um, to really help push cybersecurity forward. Yeah, for sure. And thanks so much for the the intro. I kind of had to laugh because I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I am involved in a lot of stuff that is a little bit obfuscated and confusing. Um, But yeah, I I started in um, in IT um, during the dot com boom in the 90s. And I was very fortunate. Um, I essentially cut my my professional teeth with Nortel. And we had. we had a number of, you know, really um, important years there that really pushed IT to the forefront and technology. And I was quickly, you know, rolled into IT security, IT forensics, and, um, you know, went on to the U.S., spent several years down there um, in Texas, in Austin, uh, which was amazing. And, you know, the, the hot years of, of Linux, and then it all vaporized, right? So, um, you know, returned to Canada. Life back here was, uh, you know, fantastic, but very different, very different economic landscape. And, um, you know, technology was still very important, but, you know, the, the, the high days were over and there was a sober reality of what really needed to be done, especially with respect to cybersecurity. So I moved into um, the military and, and law enforcement side um, in the early 2000s and worked for RCMP and a number of other agencies. And um, just, I guess I just found my calling and um, I was always very proud of uh, the work that our nations and our ally partners were doing in terms of maintaining our respective alliances and our national security together. And um, I just thrived in that, in that area and continued on, uh, moved into national intelligence can't say too much about that, but, um, you know, worked with some amazing people, some amazing units. And uh, in the course of doing that, I recognized what I think is one of our biggest challenges in cybersecurity. So I kind of started a little side project for myself in the process. 
Very exciting. And I mean, that is quite a bit, but you're also um, an entrepreneur. Is that safe to say? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, I always say I'm a reluctant entrepreneur because I'm, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm really the, you know, I'm the technological person behind this, um, the problem solver. So I'm, I'm not the businesswoman. I'm not the marketer, not the finance gal. Um, I'm, you know, wholly focused on uh, the technological solution and, and the patent. And um, I rely very heavily on other folks around me who are experts in those areas. So um, I guess, yeah, I am an entrepreneur. And I've certainly seen, um, you know, the, the struggles and the, and the challenges in, in moving a solution to a market to commercialize. Um, but yeah, I always kind of use the caveat of a reluctant entrepreneur. <laughs> well, as, an entrepreneur as an yeah. entrepreneur, if I may speak up here, it is funny the fact that you say you're a reluctant entrepreneur, but you already have the mindset. Like the fact that you've got your fingers in so many different pulses to me is very entrepreneurial. So <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. And I think like there's a you know, I'm, I would say largely I'm introverted to my technology. So I'm mm-hmm. most comfortable when I'm dealing with my technology. Um, I would say I'm less comfortable and I'm most comfortable dealing with my colleagues and, and solving um, national security problems, right? So it, there is certainly a benefit to having soft skills as an entrepreneur where, you know, you're, you're able to speak to everyone in the room and really promote your idea. I think the problem, though, in cybersecurity specifically is... It's, it can be a very challenging subject to get others to understand if they don't work in that sector. Um, even if you work in the technology sector, cybersecurity is very unique. And the value of it, right, is not, um, is not seen because it's when things don't happen that you know it's working, you know it's valuable. So it's a really, it's a really difficult um, it's difficult. It's a difficult concept, I think, to to really market um, as a as a CEO and as an entrepreneur. So I would say, like that, that, that has been my challenge around, and that's why I say reluctant because I'm kind of like, mm-hmm. if you want to talk to me about security controls and NIST 853, we'll talk all day. But <laughs> it's really hard for me to turn that into you know the conversations around the patent and why Tiger is so important to the industry. The Tigers, your the endeavor, basically the uh, the company you've been building essentially. And yes, you know, I, I do want to um, kind of jump in and be a little candid on the subject because, well, we're all three females, but you know, you're um, a female leader and uh, behind this company. And, uh, you know, unfortunately we still have the biases out there, right. And in, in, especially yeah. in cybersecurity, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the challenges you faced as a female leader um, and going into it and, and how you try to overcome it or even advice that you give to others or how maybe, you know, more ways where we can try to shift so that these biases aren't, you know, there forever because it, it's, it's real. And I want to address that a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Um, 100%. My first, uh, you know, my first line of advice is always call it out. Um in my profession, I worked, well, obviously it's male dominated, right? Law enforcement, military. Um, I've never had anything but respect ever. And even the times where I've had some challenging discussions with people, I've done it one-on-one. I've done it privately. If someone offends me, it's, it just, it's a discussion we have. Um, I don't make them, uh, you know, the, the public point of it because some people just don't mean it, but they don't know how to change their script. So, it doesn't mean don't address it. And it doesn't mean the second time that it's the gloves are off, but these things have to be addressed. They have to be brought head on. It has to be talked about. I mean, really I I work in um, right now in Canada, one of the most controversial organizations and have worked in another where we have essentially a crisis in terms of, of how our, our genders treat each other and the diversity, diversity and the respect. So, you know, for me, I think because I, I was sort of conditioned in my professional environment, moving as into it as with an entrepreneur um, and having the respect of my colleagues obviously really built up my confidence. So I, I would say like as an entrepreneur, as a woman, I will tell you, I've had some very, um, you know, kind of disappointing conversations with um, 
with some investors and partners and, and men. And I can feel the difference in how they see the legitimacy of my idea and that I really have to, um, I really have to prove that. And, you know, I, I feel, I, I guess I feel, you know, to some degree, um, a little reticent around that, but at the same time, it hasn't stopped me. It shouldn't stop any woman. And I, I really do believe the key to it is addressing it and calling it out immediately because you have to get your story heard. It shouldn't be that you have to have your story heard and legitimized as a woman before you can tell your story. And if it's business, business is business. We're all in this to make a difference, to make money and to build companies. Doesn't matter whether we're male or female. And and that needs to be really recognized, I think. Yeah, 100%. So th- this topic is so near and dear to my heart as an entrepreneur. And full disclosure, everyone, I'm the Dallas Chair for Global Leaders Organization. It is an organization that is um, all, all about building the community of owners, founders, entrepreneurs. And the the crux and what ties our community together is getting access to capital. Okay. And um, as a female, we see it. The numbers aren't showing bias in the context of we're making it happen. It's obvious. Less than 2% of women owned businesses get the investments that they ask and look for, for various reasons. But, you know, Valerie, I find very interesting is because you're the technical side of it. You're the one that has to validate the IP, right? That you're asking these investors to come into. Do you find yourself getting questioned more on testing your knowledge versus testing your concept? Um, I think sometimes, but I would say it's specific to the investor's background and or potential investor or partner's background. So I've I've dealt with some investors and partners that um, they're practitioners and they have a background similar to mine, and we speak the same language. And I think that, and I think overall, when you speak the same language as someone, that opens all kinds of doors. So I think, you know, there's a difficulty of, you know, you, you prove yourself in those conversations with other uh, practitioners or investors and they realize, you know, that this person is coming from um, a position of, of um, you know, expert knowledge and, and who's, you know, really, you know, gone through the whole process. When you deal with folks that, um, irrespective of their gender that aren't familiar with that area, there's always a shroud of doubt. And it's, you know, I think too, going, again, sort of going back to the challenges around cybersecurity, when you're, you know, trying to solve a very large strategic problem um, that we really, we've been wrestling with for a couple decades now, you know, you, you really are in a position where you have to prove yourself to some extent. And then you've got to prove the technology. You've got to prove the uh, viability of what you're what you're claiming your technology does, right? I'm fortunate because I have a patent, so I have a U.S. patent that was already issued last year. Um, so few, to some you? extent, what's that? You have a few more than one, don't you? Um, so my Canadian examinations are actually happening right now. Okay. <laughs> so, well, congrats. <laughs> or, oh, thank you. Yes. Thanks. Yeah, it's. I'm telling you, the things I've learned from that whole process, it's been a huge learning curve. Um, And my lawyer has been fantastic. So that's been a great help. But, you know, that that really that really does legitimize you when you have a patent that shows you have, you know, there's you have a narrative around your technical solution and that you've vested yourself, you've spent the money, you've gone through the process, and you're dealing with U.S. patent lawyers here, and they're they're not easy on you. So you are really dealing with a lot of um, hurdles and prior art, and you you really have to understand that what you are claiming with your solution is absolutely true and correct. So that's really helped my conversations a lot, certainly um, with investors and partners. Um, again, irrespective of their gender, they know that you're serious, I think, when you do that. And I, I think it's kind of unfortunate because, you know, patents are not always in the reach of everybody and they're not always suitable for the solution either. So, um, you know, for me, I'd say it was it was very fortunate. I, I, I did the right thing. I made the right steps in doing that. But, um, yeah, it's it, that's a whole other ball of wax in terms of, you know, difficulties for sure. So, yeah. And, 
Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. Along the lines of investments. So we're talking about like, again, overcoming certain biases, but wouldn't it be argued that seeking investment is somewhat like a dance or dating for lack of a better analogy? You know, you got to make sure you both like each other, right? That you both have similar interests, goals, et cetera, and respect each other. So instead of the challenges that we see from investors coming in, what are you looking for in an investor? Because I think you can be just as choosy as they are on who they want to invest in. So Valerie, have you have you figured out or formulated what you're looking for in, a, in a, your dream investor? Yeah, and I think it's been, um, you know, early on, I had had discussions with investors. So, so I started this about five and a half years ago. And I bootstrapped the whole way. The reason I didn't engage with investors back then, um, you know, especially, at, you know, at the angel level was I don't want my solution to be, you know, just something to be a return on investment for a static amount of cash. You know, I have a passion behind this and I really believe that it will change a part of the culture related to so, uh, to um cybersecurity and the socialization of it, the habitus, how we do cybersecurity also can be changed by it. So I don't, I, you know, I was really resistant to, you know, take 50 grand or hundred grand, you know, just to get myself to the next level, knowing that the person that I may be in bed with is someone that is really, they just want their money back. And where that's okay, I feel like, you know, that's what banks are for. Again, not to suggest that that's within everyone's reach because it's not. Um, but you need an investor who wants to build a company around your solution and not just focused on the short focus on the short term. You can focus on the short term for the return, but there has to be a mindset that this is, you know, this is the concept of building a, a company is is very different than just you know launching a technological solution. So. Should have never gave him that tennis ball. <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> he's like wrecking my living room. Um, and for those that, that are listening, I'll say you have eight dogs and we'll get to that a little bit later because that's interesting too. <laughs> oh, yeah. All about doggy interruptions. Yeah. I don't mind editing out doggy barks or anything like that. So. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's usually the swearing that follows the barking. I don't want you to hear. <laughs> Completely understand. And no, I've never done that before. What? <laughs> uh, yeah. So going back to just, you know, investors, I, I think it's like-mindedness is really important. And, and that's hard to find, right? Because it is like finding a partner. You're looking for someone who is going to be with you in, in this journey towards a goal. And, and that's tough. So, you know, I find the, the entrepreneurs, the real ones that I talk to, who've really gone through these processes of dealing with the investors and, and really depending on external funding and external support, you know, it's, it's a real challenge. And I will say, I was at a dinner, I won't say with who, very well known, and we're all having a conversation around the table. And one of the guys who was an investor that was invited to this large dinner had said, you know, I'm getting sick and tired of getting these pitches from, you know, people just out of the blue and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just kind of sitting there and I'm going, God, like what an awful attitude to have. You should be so energized that people are coming to you with their innovation and and that you foster. And I'm telling you, if somebody came to me, I'd be like, you know what? I can't help you, but I know someone who can because don't want to shut that down. And I think that starts to change the culture of real innovation, real creativity, and a real entrepreneurship that is a job, right? Because should be treated like a job. So when we have these investors and, you know, VC funders that sit back and they feel like they're doing, you know, and entrepreneurs a favor, it's like, hey, man, we're the ones making you the money. So, you know, I think there needs to be an attitude check around, you know, entrepreneurs, we're not just like, you know, cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs and sitting in the basement, like toiling away and coming up with wacky ideas. You know, some of us have taken our professional, our vocation or our professions and infused that into a problem, into problem solving. And that's, that's major. Like that's, that's something that should really be capitalized on. Agree a hundred percent. And, um, Thanks for sharing so much of that as well. And, and I, it, you know, you talked a lot about culture and like-mindedness and I want to 
um, you know, talk a little bit more about that because you've also been public private sector um, for a lot of your career and you do a lot of work there. And uh, um, I'm fortunate that I've now can say I've had both worlds as well. And, you know, we really do need to build bridges of common understanding and the mutual interest and mutual respect and find the ways to find common ground, right? Lift up the voices to be heard, build networks of like-minded thinkers. And we do, we just have so many challenges that we're all facing. And it, you know, can't be that we have the people that are just living in ivory towers that are the ones so determined um, or that are determined all the answers to these problems, but it has to be intentional on um, being cooperative and solving them and including those, not just in cybersecurity, for example, so given your work in both public and private, you know, how are you engaging people from all backgrounds and types of organizations? And, you know, what have you found that's working? Because I know, you know, some still struggle with that. And we, you know, as a whole collectively struggle with that, and especially in our industry and cybersecurity. Well, I think, you know, um, having been, you know, in a number of different organizations now for probably two, two decades, I guess. You know, I think you start to really learn the value of networking and connecting. And networking is one thing. Connecting is is truly uh, that's something much more intimate, and and with an endorsement. So, you know, with all the organizations I've been involved in, there's common denominators. So whether it's the National Police Foundation, where I'm a research fellow, um, whether it's NATO Canada or um, the American Association of Evidence Based Policing or ILEA, there's you know the common denominator is. Each organization is trying to solve a problem. In my case, all of these problems are related to security and the, you know, criminality and maintaining social values and and social context and nation uh, prosperity. So I think, you know, there's there's a responsibility for people like myself to when we come in contact with either youth who are, you know, trying to move into cybersecurity or even adults who are changing careers, um, especially veterans, because we see this a lot in the military and, and in law enforcement as well, where you're you're leaving a very distinct profession and there's not really a lot of places to go. Like it's, you yeah. know, you're you're really, you know, you're um, imbued in a culture and an ethos that makes you very, very unique. So people like that have a lot to add, but they've got to be put in contact with the right people who can recognize their skills and then maybe put them again in contact with the right people to actually, um, you know, help them materialize them. When I was a kid, so <laughs> going back a little bit about my history, um, mm-hmm. I never finished high school. So I graduated into grade nine. I quit my job. Uh, sorry, I quit school. I got a job. I worked in a record store when I was 14 in retail. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff around that why I did that. But when I was 16, I was living on my own. I knew I wanted to go back to college. I knew I was smart and I knew I wanted to do things that were purposeful. So it took a couple of years. I had to get enough under my feet to really put myself in a position of, you know, really walking the talk. But, you know, when I went to Nortel, they took a huge risk on me. I had no credentials, but, you know, I was interviewed on you know, my, my skills and my soft skills, uh, my, my, you know, my uh, desire to succeed and, and how I could, you know, describe, verbalize my vision for myself. Like, that's crazy that I was able to even get a chance. But, you know, I'm not saying I'm so great now, but I, <laughs> I've done a lot with what I was given. And, you know, for, you know, a kid that didn't even finish high school, I now have, you know, an MBA, I have two masters, and I'm doing a thesis with World Roads University, which I'm, I'm very proud of my research. I've got a scholarship. People now see that um, my determination was worth something, but I needed help along the way. I needed people to, you know, believe in me and take the chances on me um, and put me in the places where they knew that I would do well. And I had to listen, which was also very important because what I want to do in my life is I want to play with my dogs all day, but yeah. nobody's going to pay me to do that. <laughs> so, you know, I, Oh, you look, I was like, wait, maybe <laughs> Earl, have you seen these kids getting paid $10 million to open gifts? They're <laughs> I know. And I wish we could go back to those days where I don't want to say it was easier because it wasn't. And we all had our challenges even getting from it to cybersecurity, but how it's gotten so much tougher 
has got to change. Yeah. It has got to change. Well, and I think if we look at the dichotomy of, you know, if you take a cybersecurity practitioner, someone who's well-credentialed, they've got the certifications, um, they're doing well in their, their profession, they're dedicated, nothing, you know, if that person, so they've taken a motivation to, um, you know, a life of, of, of helping and, and, and furthering cybersecurity. If we look at the malicious actors, they don't have credentials, but they have the same drive. And I think, yeah. you know, there's an interesting examination of the human condition there. So, I mean, not to get too deep, but, you know, I'm a sociologist as well. So, I mean, what do I say? Um, you know, I have to look at people and how people do people things. But, you know, when you decide that you're going to do good all your life and you have drive behind that, nothing can stop you. If you decide you're going to do bad and you've got drive behind that, nothing can stop you. So, you know, I think the I think the redeeming quality between the two is you have a passion, you have a belief, you have a, an ideology in terms of how you think the world should be. Never underestimate that because it's an incredible force, irrespective of your education, your economic background, um, your race, your gender. Um, you know, a person's drive is a formidable force. I call that fire in the belly. <laughs> yeah. I've noticed, and it doesn't matter what industry, but I noticed in cybersecurity, I was in it for a little bit. And by the way, my adventure in cybersecurity was sales. So I call myself like the groupie of cybersecurity. But, <laughs> but the truth is this, that fire in the belly, what I've seen as I'm learning, like re-engaging in the cybersecurity community is you can't train that. It's something in you that's inherent, but I'm wondering, and let me ask you this, of the skill sets that you see that drive, or there's a consistency in cybersecurity professionals, I argue if you like puzzles and you love to think outside the box to solve problems, I feel like that is like the critical key thing you need to be successful in cybersecurity. Do you agree or disagree? 100% 100% agree. 100%. I think that, you know, I, I remember when I was with Nortel, like they had us, we were doing like Myers-Briggs and all kinds of stuff, like trying to figure out what kind of people we are. And, uh, you know, and that's all fine and interesting. But I mean, really, at the end of the day, if you look at the aptitude of, um, you know, puzzle solving, problem solving, that's what you do every day as a security practitioner. It's more than just fooling around with code or with standards or uh, security controls because, and I think the interesting thing too is every practitioner that I've met who's good at their job and loves it are amazing at the strategic level. They're great at the procedural and the policy, but they see a big picture and they see a picture that no one else sees. And I think that also is part of the frustration of, you know, really um, communicating um, the aspects of cybersecurity because some of these folks are truly, truly visionaries. They see things that others don't, but that's why we hire them. That's why we need them. And we, and we have to trust them, right? I think that those are really important. But yes, you're right about the puzzles. I think that is a very, very astute observation for sure. Yeah, it is um, definitely the mindset of problem solving, solving for you know puzzles and being able to um, see the bigger picture to get to the root of the problem and, and try to solve is, I mean, we're always learning and that's part of it, right? In this industry is we have to stay on top of our skill sets because it's going to be evolving. It is evolving. And, um, you know, are you, I want to ask a question just because you're based in Canada and, you know, I see it very close in the U S all of our challenges we're having and why I'm so involved in trying to make it, a better situation for the mentees we have. And then also just working with organizations to figure out how can they hire differently. Right. And really let's change the game here because what we're doing now is not working. Um, In Canada, what have you been seeing just in terms of, you know, cybersecurity hiring, what people are looking for um, folks that you maybe mentor and, you know, are you seeing it shift hopefully for, 
improvements, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Are you, you know, do you think we're still so far away from, you know, getting somewhere where we don't have all these great people who can't find the job, but they're very talented? <laughs> Well, I think uh, I think there's so many things to unpack in there. Like, no. I mean, really, there is a period a couple of years ago, if I heard about one more center event excellence being stood up, I was going to lose my mind oh, yeah. because there was all these, everybody was like setting up an organization, a center of excellence. And, and some of these were government and some of them were private sector and some were pro- nonprofit. And it was just like, you know, can you all not just get together and figure out, like, focus people, focus on the problem. What are we trying to do here? And I think the biggest problem that, that we make in Canada, I don't know so much in the U.S., but, like, I love the work that Cyber Future Foundation is doing um, because I really feel like they get it. You can't encapsulate what innovation and creativity is. So in Canada, we have programs that are stood up by the federal government to, um you know, it, it really, it's just, you know, they're, they're kind of saying, here's our problems and, you know, who out there can solve it. And, you know, it's essentially a competition, but it, what they see to be the problem, the requirement is not really the problem. That's not innovation. That's a, 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 a knee jerk reaction to something that you should be proactive about. So if we truly had an innovative, creative society that we fostered, we would be looking on the broad scapes of problems as opposed to the point in time today's problem and that reactiveness that really we we end up in this cycle of constantly reacting to what today's problem is and then tomorrow's problem and the next day's problem. But if we really sat back and fostered innovation and creativity in the way that it should be, because you can't you can't wrap requirements around innovation and and measure um, innovation and have it meet criteria. It's innovation. It's it's fluid. Um, if we had that mindset towards our entrepreneurs and certainly towards our youth and the curriculums in our school, I think we would have a very different social culture when it relates to business. To what extent we're moving in that direction? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I don't think we're quite getting it yet. Um, you know, I think there's a social aspect that's missing in a lot of our domestic policy and foreign policy. Until we figure that part out and accept it, it's going to be a hard road to hoe. You know, in terms of change. I was just going to say, I, I feel like Cyber Future Foundation has they have a true enlightenment around this, and they understand that the work they're doing with youth and, and really creating those networks, I think, is is really great. And we need more of that for sure. I think you kind of like fed into what I was going to ask you both ladies on this because of Cyber Future Foundation, there's a lot of involvement with, you know, what I've called the next generation cybersecurity professional. And I say that no age, no experience, just the, the, the future next generation cybersecurity professional. But if we're going to mention this, Leah, you work with so many folks of the next generation from a physical maturity perspective. Are you seeing a shift between us Gen Xers to their level of creativity for those that are starting out? Like, have you, are you seeing and hearing them pitch ideas to you that is something unique and different that you're like, hmm, didn't think about that before? Valerie, you want to take that one first? <laughs> I'd say it's so hard because it's anecdotal. I'd say yes. Like, I think there is a maturation that's occurred. And I think we have a little bit more of an, I guess for lack of a better term, you know, automatic response around this as opposed to before it really felt very grassroots. Like, I, I guess, you know, when I look back, <laughs> again, Nortel, <laughs> you know, when I look back at Nortel, like we, I had blonde cornrows and I wore flip-flops to work and nobody said anything about any of us. We had facial piercings and tattoos and nobody cared because we were we did a good job, but they knew that that was part of who we were. So, you know, the creativity and innovation that was fostered there by Nortel as an institution, and they also understood to manage their attrition to keep the good employees, they had to kind of loosen things up a little bit and let people be people. Let them work from home when they wanted. Let them come in at 10 rather than 8. Um I was famous for parking in the fire escape all the time and nobody towed my car because I was always like, no, I'm in a rush. I got to get to a meeting. And, you know, there was so much tolerance, I think, around 
you know, really we were a bunch of spoiled brats, to be honest. Um, but we were so in love with Nortel and we were so committed to their vision and their mission. And, you know, I think they knew what they were, the leadership, um, John Roth at the time and prior uh uh, Jean Monti really knew they were good leaders and they really knew how to create that in the culture of the organization. And, and I think that part of Nortel worked very, very well. If that could be replicated in, in, in the same institutional form with that fluidity. So yeah, I, I think I just probably just repeated myself in full circle. Like I feel very strongly about innovation and creativity because I'm also a very creative person. I've, I do a lot of creative things on the side that have nothing to do with technology. And I know the, the conditions that are required for that. And you can't force it. There's no formula. There's no recipe. There's things that you need to put in place and it's 50-50 if it's going to yield anything, right? And you measure or you meter your expectations to that. Um, but I think when you have a bunch of people thinking that way, you get massive power because innovation and creativity begets innovation and creativity. We feed off each other, right? So I like that. Um, yeah, your uh, mention of parking in the fire escape reminded me when I was at Cisco, I had a manager who you know, you go to each building, we were always on campus, but the um, spots in the front were for guests, meaning the customers, right? But he would always park in the first guest spot within each <laughs> building we'd go to. And I'd say, you know, you you can't park here. He goes, I'm a guest to this building today. <laughs> um, but that creativity, I, I am seeing it more lately. And mainly, unfortunately, why I'm seeing it is because these people are really struggling to get into cybersecurity. And again, until we we have more hiring managers and organizations willing to change the process and what that looks like and the requirements and see talent that in different ways and in different areas, um, they have to step up their creativity game just to try to even get into an interview, even if they are yeah. networking and connecting. Um, so, you know, whether it's not for the so great, why they're becoming more creative. They are, you know, and, and um, I know that'll help them once they can break in, but um, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, well, and I think you hit on something there too, that I remember this from the late eighties, early nineties um, in, in marketing. Cause I actually got my start. I went to college to be a graphic designer and then yeah, I started in, mar in marketing and then moved over to oh, cyber. So. Man. <laughs> well, and, and my family, uh, you know, we, my my brother was a musician and a TV host and all this. A lot of artsy kind of folks in my in my family. I'm the weirdo with all the degrees that talks about things that nobody understands. Um, but you know, I remember you know back at the you know sort of that crux where before technology really dominated our lives, marketing was very important. And I remember listening to stories about guys that would do amazing things to get the attention of marketing directors because they wanted a job with that firm. And this one guy had taken a, um, an egg and pinholed it, blew out the insides, the equimune, and then uh, got a little note and slipped it inside. And he did like this very elaborate uh, packaging and sent it to the marketing director. And this guy got the job because it was just such an elaborate way to introduce himself and I think that's what we have to think about with social media there's nothing elaborate about it so you can wing out all the emails you want you can have all the LinkedIn contacts and connections you want you have to find a way number one if you really want to work for a company because you believe in their philosophy you got to find out who the decision maker is. So who who's hiring? Who do you need to get your face in front of or who has influence? And you have to find ways to get into their network because I think, you know, we're all, all kind of like subspecies, you know, animals like to hang out with the same kind of animals. So you want to make sure that you're in those same social spaces as the person that could potentially hire you or that, you know, you want to work with. And I think that's where the organizations become important because they put you in touch with these folks. I think, you know, a lot of the frustration around, you know, trying to find a job in today's climate is, you know, I hear from people all the time saying like, I've applied to 200, 300 places and nobody replies to me. And I'm like, well, yeah, because you're, you're binary. You're a piece of code that reaches them. You have to find a way to be the person 
to show up and convince them that you are the person for the job. And I know that sounds crazy and arduous, but those are the people that are going to get the jobs, right? It's that you have to have those social connections. If you don't, you have to create them somehow. Yeah. I have a question on this for both of you guys though, then, because you're both seeing this and I'm hearing this, you know, again, anecdotally, right? What happened to us? Valerie, you were the girl, you know, the lady with the, the cornrows parking in the, you know, emergency exit, which is by the way, extraordinary illegal but we won't talk about that ramification and <laughs> in the fire department world like it, her name is not valerie don't worry about it um or at least she's not doing it anymore but ladies what happened to us we were the ones that were like the free spirits we were the ones that were like carving paths knocking down walls changing things up and now we're the hiring managers we're the decision makers we're the leaders so what's happened where the industry that we've basically birthed right and I, I don't know if that's a great description, but we've created um, is now the most exclusive little clicky click thing where you're saying you got to differentiate yourself. You've got a network. You've got to get in the right network. I feel like we've become the elitist we railed against back in the 80s and 90s. Well, I think you're I think you're partially right. But, you know, I think the, you know, the stick in the spokes has been social media. So, yeah. you know, social media basically changed everything and and literally it changed our social habitus, it changed how we deal with each other, how we interact, what we think is acceptable. Um it put things in in front of us on a daily basis that um we would never normally have to contend with. And everything from human rights issues to gender issues to um, you know, racism, diversity, politics, all of this stuff has become mainstream in a way that it never was. So, you know, the, you know, the rage against the authoritarianism or against the big machine is, in my opinion, it's, you know, the social media machine. Um, but it's hard because when you have people that, that want to interact in a particular way because they've been conditioned into that by social media and by electronic uh, communications, that makes it really hard. So, you know, I think there's there's sort of a happy medium between the two. Um, you know, I think there's, I don't know, I think there's something to be said for you kind of have to decide the problem you want to solve. There's going to be ways to do it in an easier fashion and there's going to be a harder way that's probably more rooted in your principles and your ideologies. And you have to make a decision between the two. Sometimes you can mix the two up a little bit, but I think that becomes the moral dilemma sometimes, right? Yeah. That's, um, that's really interesting or intriguing perspective too. And it's funny because along those lines, I had this conversation about this time a year ago with someone else. Um, and you know, it, in cybersecurity, I think we've we looked away for a long time. Um, many, yes. I'm gonna just gonna say globally, number one. I mean, I'll go back to this, right? Osama bin Laden, he and with social media, talk about that for a second, that he was able to put, you know, us uh his videos on YouTube for hours at a time, right? And then it yeah. took a time, too much time for someone to realize and say, uh, wait a minute, he's a terrorist. Maybe we should take it down. So like thinking about shifting consciousness, right? Because I mean, that's the example I'm going to use because I think all of us as individuals and looking globally for perspective, but we all have accountability to take. And I think inclusivity is really what's needed in cybersecurity, whether someone is not in it or not, and we have to speak the language to get them to just understand. Um, and so what I'd love to see, and we're talk, having this conversation for our listeners in 2021 in December, but we'll you know be releasing the conversation when you hear it in early 2022. I don't know that we'll see all the big changes we want in 2022, but I really hope by the time my niece and nephew are in the workforce that we see it by then and they're nine and 11. So. Oh, well, and I, I think that's a really good point. And, and, you know, to actually just to sort of slide back to uh, Tiger as a solution, you know, one of the things that I've always had a challenge in communicating to stakeholders as a practitioner is, you know, 
there's a there's an idea or um maybe a feeling that when you have certain countermeasures and safeguards in place that you have security. So, you know, when I talk to someone about their network security and they're like, well, you know, we've got a guard, we've got a diode, we've got, you know, ABS, we've got IGPS, IPS, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, so what are you protecting? How do you know that those things protect your most important assets to the classification that they are at or may be at because we see this all the time we got unclassed stuff come in and tomorrow or well not tomorrow but months down the road it's on an airplane and it's top secret it's a it's a a classified asset so you know there's always a presumption that we do all this stuff and you know we've got our antivirus and you know i've got hitman pro and all kinds of great stuff and i must be secure but we don't think multi-domain we don't think in terms of architecture security, network security, data and information security, personal security, which also relates to physical security and insider threat, all those things. But these are very complicated. And I think historically um, in technology, we always want the silver bullet, right? We want the thing that like fixes all the stuff. Um, And, you know, I have this great cartoon of this like screaming little guy and it just says, you know, secure all the stuff. And it's like, yeah, but do it smartly, like do it in a way that your most important asset, all your budget is going to countermeasures that secures that thing or whatever you have custody of, of a stakeholder that you're securing that, um, you know, in priority, right? Everything's about priority. So, you know, I think we're getting used to being a little bit more sophisticated in how we do cybersecurity, and that it's not a one, you know, one size fits all, all hazard, hazards approach that um, once you do it and it's done, you're fine. It's not, you know, you've got, it's got to be part of what you do on a regular basis in your job. And, and uh, you have to be prepared to continually revisit that. And I think until we get to that point, we're going to see continued breaches. The same ones over and over. We fall for it all the time, right? <laughs> well, you mentioned the thinking around multi-domain, right? And you gave mm-hmm. that, and you're thinking that way clearly. Thank goodness, right? But we all need to be to your point because the bad actors are thinking many avenues, you know, yep. that are open for them and finding new ones every single. You know, they're not stopping and resting. They're continuing to find new ways in. So that's really key thinking there that you brought up. That, well, and yeah. 100%. And I think that's where, you know, one of the challenges we have with the standards is so like um, our MSEC standard for, for emission security for ITSG uh, 11A. So that specifically deals with emission securities related to particular assets. Well, that's all well and fine, but to, to, a you know, to exact a breach and exploit and exfiltrate what you're looking for, you know, yeah, you can do it, but you know what? I'd find the guy that has the access to the data and I'd, you know, assemble a team, someone to socially engineer him um, and, and to work and groom him over a period of time. And that's sometimes an easier, higher success rate than a very complicated electronic breach towards MSEC. I mean, and we really need to think in the terms of, you know, I always like to say, think like the bad guys, you know, they want a high rate of success. They want the asset and they don't want to go to jail generally. So, you know, what avenues, what attack vectors fit that? What is the most um, accessible and easiest? Look at those attack surfaces, get familiar with them. But again, you know, us practitioners, like we just do that, right? And yeah. no one, it, it, it's hard. It's a harder sell to, you know, the person that's just, you know, trying to keep the lights on or um, maintain the profit margins. It's a very tough sell. Well, Valerie, I do hope you can get some rest in um, as we're closing out another year here. <laughs> I know that's a maybe a blasphemy term to use, <laughs> words to use uh, in our careers. But I want to say it's been a joy having you on with us today and sharing so much um, of your background and what you're doing and all the greatness um, that you've been providing to the industry and community. For parting thoughts, any parting thoughts? Um, I don't know. I guess it would just depend on to whom. Like, I think, you know, the folks that listen to you, I think, you know, you women do a great job at what you're doing. And, um, 
you know, I think that the, your listeners, the people that do listen in, you know, they're looking for guidance and I think they're looking for um, direction and, and ways to take that into their professional life and, and make differences. So, you know, I would just encourage you guys to just keep doing the great job you're doing. And for everyone else who listens, you know, stay motivated, stay engaged. Don't be afraid to take chances and, um, you know, park in the fire lane every <laughs> once in a while. I, love that. I don't know if you realize in Texas, we would, we would have gotten like towed very quickly. They don't mess around. <laughs> <laughs> so Valerie, where can people reach out to you and find you if they want to connect with you? What's the best um, so, yeah, I'm definitely on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can find me at Valerie Finley and uh, on LinkedIn. I think I'm probably the only Valerie with two A's um, on LinkedIn. Um, certainly you can reach me through humanled.com or tigersolutions.com uh, as well. Um, yeah, and I'm always, you know, I'm always happy to, to have chats with people. I'm, I'm really loving uh, Zoom and Teams. Um, I was never, you know, really into it, but um, more and more as people reach out, I just really love the social interaction, find it really valuable. So yeah, for sure. If anyone has any questions, you're, you know, very, you know, very welcome to reach out to me at any time. Awesome. Valerie Finley, Tiger, check it out, check her out. And again, thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us today and for the amazing conversation. Very, very motivating and uplifting to continue the day. Thank you so much. And all the best in 2022 for all of you. If I could just summarize our conversation, because I'm very inspired by you, Valerie, is this. (laughs) There's no rest for the wicked when it comes to cybersecurity. We need innovation and we need a cultural shift in embracing and endorsing and inspiring and all that good stuff for innovation. And secondly, not all money is good money. Right. For investment as an entrepreneur, really do your research and understand you have an equitable relationship between the investor and yourself. You're bringing more things to the party, if anything. And so again, understand that if you're going to take some money, understand their motivations, what you want to get out of it and what they want to get out of it. Valerie Findlay, you said it all, and I love that. I think we can go ahead and close this out for another CISO Diaries entry. See you. Bye. Bye.